It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode of Stories of Our Times is the first of a special two-part podcast presented by my colleague, the Times Berlin correspondent, Oliver Moody. And you're in for a treat. At the dawn of the Cold War, East Germany's secret police, the Stasi, hatched one of the most notorious, brutal and ingenious espionage programs in modern history. It relied not on electronic surveillance or blackmail, but on the vulnerabilities of the human heart. The Stasi trained Romeos, smooth, emotionally intelligent men, versed in the art of seduction, to go beyond the wall and ensnare lonely women who worked in the antechambers of power. Women, privy, to office gossip and momentous secrets of state. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and Sunday Times. I'm Oliver Moody, The Times' Berlin correspondent. This is the first episode of a two-part podcast. Today, The Stasi's Romeo Agents, Part 1, School for Seduction. I want to introduce you to a world of subterfuge and false identity, of competing ideologies, of the history that has shaped the city and country I now report from. Over the course of two episodes, I'm going to tell you the previously unheard stories of the East German spy agency's first two Romeo agents, men who charmed women working in the West German Chancellery who had access to the highest levels of Western intelligence. These women, known as Juliets, unwittingly fell in love with men who had the full force of a totalitarian state supporting them in wringing out all the information they could. The story, reconstructed through the diligent detective work of German historian Gunnar Tarka, can now be told in full for the first time. program started in the 1950s, a few years after Germany had been split in two following the Second World War. Both East and West Germany were founded as separate states in 1949 and were immediately, of course, part of two very different ideological blocs. 
My friend, the historian Katja Hoyer, grew up in communist East Germany, but has lived in the UK for the past decade. West Germany aligned itself very firmly with the US-led capitalist bloc, whilst East Germany was set up as a socialist state aligned with the Soviet Union. And so from the off, basically, you've got a situation whereby the fault lines of the Cold War run straight through the middle of Germany. And both Germanys are very, very aware of this and are immediately looking at the other as kind of the immediate enemy on the other side of the divide. East Germany, which is officially called the German Democratic Republic or the GDR, decided to keep East Berlin as its capital. And in West Germany, which is known as the Federal Republic of Germany or the FRG, Bonn was decided on as the capital. In the East, order was enforced by a shadowy presence, the GDR's secret police known as the Stasi. When I was growing up in the 1990s, the word was everywhere. It was very much still a topic of debate, you know, whether people had a, a Stasi background or not. There were also lots of jokes around. So if you were on the phone to somebody and there was a crack in the line or the line got disrupted, you know, people would sort of joke, oh, is the Stasi, you know, listening in and things like that. What kind of things did they actually do? So its main purpose was to identify political enemies internally, thereby it was active and passive surveillance that was kind of the main day-to-day work of the Stasi. So they had uh, active agents in most organisations such as, uh, say, factories, workplaces, in politics itself that would feed back information directly to the Stasi and then it had informal informants as well, who were basically just ordinary people uh, in all sorts of walks of life, who were recruited by the Stasi on an ad hoc basis and fed information back to it. So the kind of bread and butter of their work was basically espionage? Uh, Yes, which is in itself, I think, one of the reasons why it always had such a fearsome reputation. From the 1950s until the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Stasi amassed lengthy records on the people of East and West Germany. But after the wall fell in 1989, they set about destroying them. That process was hampered and certainly halted in some instances by protesters storming the Stasi offices, whereby they basically managed to stop the destruction of a lot of these. But the foreign arm of the Stasi, they were pretty much allowed to destroy almost all of their documents. Despite the destruction of so many of the files, one man began digging through the Stasi archives four years ago. My name is Gunnar Take. I'm a historian working at the University of Stuttgart. I was involved in a project on the personnel of the Chancellery and wanted to find out What did the GDR and its intelligence service know about the civil servants of the West German chancelleries? The German chancellery is the office of the country's leader, known as the chancellor. Did they have any secret sources? And what I found was that the Stasi seemed to have their tentacles um, in many places. You can see time periods where there are three, four or even five spies in the chancellery at the same time. In the mid-1970s, the chancellery was so crowded with spies that a KGB agent and a Stasi agent 
even shared an office without knowing about each other's spying activities. In amongst the files Gunnar found in the archives, one stood out. The most important document I found was a dissertation written in 1974. The Stasi had a university in Potsdam where leading officers could write their PhDs. And I recognized the significance pretty much immediately when I saw who the authors were. This dissertation was written by two men. The acting head of the branch of the Stasi tasked with spying on the West German Chancellery and by the head of the Stasi's espionage school. The document is a cost-benefit analysis of Stasi spy methods, which found the Romeo method to be the most effective and efficient. Romeos were Stasi agents who tried to gain the friendships, or preferably the love, of persons of interests. For example, secretaries working in West German ministries, in important companies. The term Romeo and the term Julia, of course, comes from William Shakespeare. But I think that term is a deeply inappropriate name mainly because it conceals the asymmetry of power. In this case, the Romeo has a whole state apparatus behind him, and the Julia is a targeted victim. And what kind of qualities did they need to have? Romeo agents were supposed to be social, they were supposed to be caring, and they were taught what many West German men didn't do, empathy. They were taught to sympathize with the woman, and they generally behave in a way you could say in a more modern way, in a less egoistic way, and thus were different from many West German men. Of course, they had means which the Stasi gave them, so they could give gifts. So we don't have to think of Romeos as they are portrayed in pop culture as those young, dashing men in the early 1970s, but rather as an older man or sometimes even a father figure. Gunnar's research has uncovered the identity of the very first Romeo agent, a man called Karl Albert Weisbach, known as Albert, codename Felix. Felix was a man born by the name of Karl Albert Weisbach in April 1922 in a small town, Pfaffroda, in the Erzgebirge, a rural part of Saxony in the east of uh, Germany. He was a baker by trade, but was drafted into the army in 1941 when he was just 19 years old. He fought mostly at the Eastern Front. And how did he get mixed up in the Stasi after the war? To answer that question, we could listen to Albert Weisbach himself. He wrote a motivation letter with regards to his political motivation. While sitting in the bunkers blockading Leningrad, I came into contact with comrades who had been members of the Communist Party and the Social Democratic Party. In those discussions, old memories returned, and I suddenly began thinking about politics. He 
he became a POW in the Soviet Union. And then a remarkable thing happened. He was given the opportunity as a POW to visit a anti-fascism school. He was politically educated and became a political activist. His work was noticed by the Stasi, who drafted him for the foreign spy agency. And what was the mission that his handlers gave him? The mission was quite open to test the water, to test the counterintelligence measures, to test how easy it is to travel to West Germany. Weisbach joined a torrent of refugees pouring out of East Germany into the West. But he would need a new identity. In spring of 1952, he gets adopted by his stepfather when he was 30 years old, which allows him to change his name from Weisbach to Gleser. And that proved sufficient to cover up his political activism. And he did find employment as a salesman for a company selling supplies to hairdressers. Albert Weisbach has a new identity. Albert Glazer. The name we'll use for him from here on. Now, the first Romeo just needs a Juliet. The first target was a woman called Erna Knaupmeier, born in spring 1922, so exactly like Glazer. I was able to interview the son of Anna Knaupmeier, who told me that her family was hardworking and also ambitious, middle class, lower middle class. She married in 1940, when she was just 18 years old, gave birth to that son, Günther, in May 1941. The husband of Anna Knaupmeier, he fought on the Eastern Front, survived Stalingrad, then was a Soviet POW, so exactly like Albert Glaser. Anna Knaupmeier's husband died in captivity. She had to find a job. And as her hometown was born, she was looking around for work there, in the ministries or in the chancellery. She's a widow. She's a single mother. But was there anything else that might have made her susceptible to the Romeo method? She was... Indeed, single mother in her early 30s, working as a telephonist in the chancellery. So she was able to listen to calls and potentially having a lot of insight uh, into the inner workings of the government. Bonn, the city of the Western government, is a quite a particular place. There were a lot of women in the situation Anna Knaupmeier was. So there was a surplus of about 10,000 women compared to men because all those ministries and the chancellery, they needed secretaries. So if you were a man, it was rather easy to find a woman. In that way, her position was quite an average one, that she was um, a widowed woman looking for another marriage, as were many, many other women. And how did Albert meet Erna Knaupmeier? The different versions on that first contact there's the version that the head of the agency, which is kind of a gung-ho style version, in it, Albert Gleser just goes to a bus stop in front of the chancellery and tries to chat up women who are very likely to work in the chancellery. And he manages to do that by his charm and the training he's received. 
There's a version Anna Knaupmeier tells herself later when the spying activities of Glaser are revealed and uh, she explains how she met him and that was that she had bought supplies from the company Glaser was working for as a salesman and met him that way and that Glaser wasn't interested at first but she insisted in getting to know him better so that the initiative stemmed from her. And I think that version is much more plausible. What kind of information was Glazer trying to get out of her? Sadly, there's nothing left in the archives of any factual information he might have got out of her. But we have an account of Anna Knobmeyer, who said that he did not get any information out of her and he did not ask about anything concerning her work. At most, he got personal information on her colleagues with whom he interacted to a huge degree. So there were parties um, where he met uh, her colleagues, other persons working at the chancellery, and he got to know them and personal information. So at any rate, this information is largely low-level office gossip from inside the chancellery. It's not sort of the rearmament program or the, or the nuclear program. No, not, not at all. The information he gathered was mostly about did the techniques work, how strong were the protection measures of the chancellery, because Anna Knaupmeyer, of course, told her employer that she had a new boyfriend and the boyfriend was at least suspect to a superficial check. And thus, the Stasi was able to start future missions. Did you get a sense of what their relationship was like? For example, how much they saw of each other or how expressive they were towards each other about their feelings? They were together from the mid-1950s until January 1962. I was able to interview the son of Anna Knaupmeyer. He also showed me a huge number of letters Anna Knaupmeyer and Albert Gläser exchanged in one, she wrote, I was of the opinion that our relationship was equal to a marriage. At least that was the way I behaved with regards to you. Gläser was a kind of a father figure for her son. He hadn't met his own father. Now his kind of stepfather, second father figure disappeared when he was 20 years old. But he also never knew why, and he could have found out since the early 1990s, because you can ask the Stasi archive if there are any information on you or on your family, and millions and millions of Germans inquired. He didn't do that, but the moment I contacted him, he was um, very interested in um, what I had to tell him about his family history. You see, this, all of this, is the reason why I agreed to embark on this adventure, to see whether my roots are tainted. We learned a lot from each other. Did he seem surprised by what you told him? He was very surprised. He was, I gather, also a little bit anxious because he didn't know precisely what the role of his mother was, so... He was open to the possibility that his mother might have been 
either a spy or might have incriminated herself. And so in the end also relieved when I told him that there was no evidence that his mother cooperated with the Stasi. It's the million Deutschmark question and we will never know the answer. Not least as Erna died some years ago. Did she suspect her boyfriend might be a spy? Gunnar tried to find out when he met her son. When I interviewed her son Günther, at one point he told me... I have now read absolutely everything and I have found no evidence with regards to his espionage activities. I have thought about why this is the case. Questions about war or developments in this direction were always answered to me only evasively. I was born in 1941. In the 50s, I was a teenager and it never crossed my mind that he could have been involved in espionage. I would not have believed it. My mother, well, she never told me anything. She never found out what he was really up to. Nobody ever contacted her and told her the truth until her death many decades later. She still considered her story to be a personal one and wasn't really aware of the political implications her case had. Coming up, how the relationship came to an abrupt end and left Elna picking up the pieces. But first... I'm Alice Thompson, a columnist and interviewer at The Times. It's the best job in the world. I get to interview the most extraordinary people from Bill Gates to James Dyson and the last interview with the incredible Deborah James. I also get to comment on the most fascinating news stories, travel to the most bizarre places and inform, analyse, infuriate and entertain. We can only do this thanks to subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, where are we? The first Romeo agent, a man named Albert Glazer, has embarked on a marriage-like relationship with Erna Knautmeier, a woman working in the West German Chancellery's telephone exchange. They were happily together for seven years, and then it all suddenly went very wrong. He received information from East Berlin that he was threatened with being uncovered. He left immediately, and it was the most abrupt end that you could imagine. He gave Anna Knaubmeier's son a letter in which he told her to go to Antwerp, where both had mutual friends. Glazer got Anna to meet him in Antwerp, 140 miles west of Bonn and across the border into Belgium. When she went there, Ernst Glazer told her, you have to travel to East Berlin. You have to live with me. Let's stay together. I had to go. I was being followed. He did not reveal that he was a spy. Despite the humiliation and confusion she must have felt, Erna Knautmeier still didn't want to let go of Albert. She insisted that he should return, that he should come back in West Germany, that if he had done something wrong, if he had done the criminal act, he could go back and if he had to go to jail for whatever he might have done, she would stick with him. She really was in love, but she was adamant that she did not want to go to East Germany, but isn't willing to end things. Albert disappeared to the East, while Erna stayed in the West. The couple found themselves on opposite sides of the border. They exchange calls and she writes letters, dozens and dozens of letters each day, begging him to return, begging him to explain himself, begging him, in effect, to be as brave as she was. And I talked to Günther Knaubmeier about that. There was a moment which touched me very much because you could feel that, that he was moved by the suffering of his mother during those months. And then I thought, my God, she's sending packages and she feels miserable. She has to fight a mountain of debt and this woman must have suffered excruciating pain as she wrote begging letters and so forth. So, for all that effort and suffering, the long love affair and its heart-wrenching ending, Glazer didn't squeeze all that much information out of Elna. So what impact, if any, did the first Romeo have? On the political level, there was almost no impact because the case didn't become public. The Chancellery was able to cover up the events and 
because Anna Knopmeier hadn't committed any crimes. There wasn't a court case. On a personal level, the impacts were devastating on Anna, on her son Günther, and to some degree on Albert as well. The first Romeo was not effective, but he demonstrated that the method could, in principle, be very effective. The, the information, the gossip he had picked up prepared a future mission in which a Romeo targeted a female colleague of Erna Knaubmeier in the Chancellery. Tomorrow, we'll hear about that colleague and how the new Romeo agent targeted and seduced her. To give the wow factor, he was able to offer Breitbach an exciting round trip over the roofs of Bonn. And hear how the Stasi still cast a shadow today. This is still able to break friendships or taint relationships with co-workers or neighbours. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Oliver Moody, Berlin correspondent at The Times, and my guests, the historians Gunnar Tarka and Katja Hoyer. You can read more about the Romeo agents at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription, and there's a link in the description notes of this podcast. The producers were Edward Drummond and Will Rowe. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. See you tomorrow for part two. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.